Welcome to Liberated, a Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm Laura Sheeter. This episode, we're talking about the environment, from the little things, getting people to change their daily commute or remember to turn off the lights, to the big picture, transforming our infrastructure for a low carbon future. We're joined by Tom Burke. He's the co-founder and chairman of the independent climate change think tank E3G. Tom was formerly the executive director of Friends of the Earth, and he's been an advisor on the environment to several governments and international organisations. I started by asking him how Lib Dem environmental policies compare to the other major parties. Well, I think among the three main parties in Britain, the Liberal Democrats have for a long time been the political party that's paid most attention to the environment and has had most to say to uh, voters uh, about the importance of the environment. Did very well as a check on the government when it was in coalition. Didn't get rewarded particularly for that, but actually made a real difference, which we really saw as soon as the Liberal Democrats weren't in government, and we saw the government immediately abandoning a lot of the sort of environmental policies. So I think it it starts from from a better place than the other two of the larger parties. You know, I think that's uh, both generous and accurate (laughs) assessment of where we are. We have undoubtedly been a greener party than the other two. Obviously in government you're having to make compromises, but I think the record in this area was a good one. I wasn't directly responsible for environmental policy, but obviously the impact of British industry is very substantial. And I think the th- things that were happening in my department, you know, the establishment of the Green Investment Bank was a major step. Of course, it's now being privatised in a way that I rather worry about its long-term future. But the development of supply chains for our offshore wind industry, which is, it was one of the big breakthrough areas which we achieved in government, would not have happened if the Conservatives had been allowed to fix policy on their own. Uh, But I think the whole concept of sustainable development, focusing on climate change as an issue, these are things that I personally care about. I helped to write the first ever intergovernmental report on climate change 30-odd years ago, and I want to make sure that we maintain that green thread in our policy. You could say this about a lot of areas of policy, but for the environment in particular, the questions we've received have gone from how do you encourage people to cycle rather than taking the car all the way up to what do we do globally about climate change? That's a huge swathe of policy. How do we get from people's everyday lives to these huge global level issues? Well, it is difficult. Local and global do connect in this area. And I think it is, you know, it is about seeing the world and the planet as a system which is actually rather important because unless you see the global picture why would you bother about your own personal behavior i mean as it happens i am an enthusiastic cyclist i don't claim i'm doing it to save the planet it's uh, happened to be easier than uh, trying to park a car and it's also healthier but you know people have mixed motives for these things clearly where we we do have to start as a political party in in terms of having clear policy framework is you know climate change is undoubtedly unequivocally scientifically sound i mean that there's so many people who are trying to undermine that but it does start from absolutely basic science and evidence it is a major threat we can see all the evidence and the signs of that the costs will not be primarily 
felt in this country. They'd be primarily felt by poor people in poor countries, and to the extent to which we think about the world as a whole rather than in a purely selfish way, which we, we do as an internationalist party, we've got to be focused on it. But I think one of the good things about Britain is that, unlike the United States, there is a sort of cross-party buy-in, broadly speaking, to recognising the problem and the fact that we have duties towards it. Uh, and I think that's something to build from, and I want the Lib Dems to be at the radical end of pushing adventurous policies on new sources of renewable power and on energy conservation. So Vince mentions radical policies and adventurous new ideas. Tom, for you, someone who looks at these ideas and what, you know, what is potentially the next best thing that we could be doing in this area, what kind of radical policies would you like to see parties adopting? Well, if I can go back to your first question, uh, really, and just say, if the environmental community was a bit better at presenting uh, the arguments, it wouldn't be such apparent gap between what the people are concerned about or doing in their everyday life and what needs to be done by governments. Uh, the environment community has been rather bad at talking about, for instance, uh, improving air quality as one of the best ways to lower the burden on the health service. The health service pays about 15 billion a year as a consequence of poor air quality in this country. Now that's a massive way not only to deal with, the, to get the public engaged in doing it, but to actually sort of liberate money for uh, health. Uh, we don't talk about the fact that everything you, you are going to do that's most effective in dealing with climate change, which is basically improving energy efficiency in the house, is going to lower people's bills and reduce fuel poverty. So I think it's not just getting more radical policies. It's also finding a language to talk about them in a way that connects to what people care about. And quite a lot of the time, the environmental community has not been very, in a sense, very helpful to politicians because it's tended to talk about the issues uh, as if they were coming out of a green ghetto. And, and understandably, it's harder for politicians to push forward with more radical policies if the support isn't there from the public. Yes, I think, I think there's a, a really important point there. Um, just to give a concrete example, I mean, one of the big issues that affects me as a local MP in southwest London is Heathrow Airport, uh, and a lot of my constituents are affected by this negatively. But the, the arguments are usually couched in terms of aircraft noise, which of course is a nuisance if you happen to live there. Uh, but it's, it's, it's rather self-interested and rather narrow. But as, if, as Tom says, we couch the argument primarily in terms of air quality, where there is a very, very serious issue about breaching uh, safe health limits and all the costs that this then imposes on, not just on residents, but the, the rest of society, that's a much more inclusive and much more convincing way of making the argument about unfettered airport expansion. I mean, the Lib Dems just very recently released a, a paper on environment climate change. Uh, what do you think were the most exciting things in that for you? Well, I, th I think you know, the bits that really interest me, and it's a continuation of the work I did in government, trying to promote innovation and advanced technology in, in, in biz when I was Secretary of State, were with some of the new technologies coming down the track. Wind power was thought to be a bit wacky, you know, less than a decade ago. It's now mainstream power supply. 
um, almost as cheap as gas in the new bidding round and much cheaper than nuclear, for example. But beyond that, you know, tidal power hasn't yet been developed, but the technology is there. One of the things I did in government was setting up what we call a catapult to promote the technology, drive down the costs. And I think one of, one of the things we should be pushing as a party is the idea of tidal lagoons, which sounds a bit exotic and far out, but actually uh, the economics of this are, in the long run, potentially enormously beneficial. Uh, reports have been done for government which show that you can have all the advantages of nuclear without the anxieties and, indeed, without the extreme costs involved in it. So that's where I really get excited about the policy. And do you think, given the idea that we need to really change our infrastructure to make this happen, are there changes to things like planning regulations that would need to happen in order to be able to push these? Or is it really a question of incentivising private enterprise to do this kind of stuff? The most difficult area is on onshore wind, which is a very cheap and sensible source of supply, but causes enormous NIMBY objections. I've never quite understood why people feel perfectly comfortable with electricity pylons crawling over the countryside, but get deeply wound up about windmills. But, you know, the planning restrictions on onshore wind have proved to be very onerous and have in many ways almost killed development of the industry and that's actually rather retrograde. But in principle, I'm, I'm in favour of having a planning system, I'm not in favour of having a free-for-all. You've got to balance an amenity against um, commercial benefit. But I think there are areas like that where restrictions have gone too far. planning system, if it's going to work so that it allows for a balance between development and the environment, needs to command public confidence. If you have a government that says we're not going to allow onshore wind for all its uh, economic advantages unless the local community support it, but we will impose fracking despite what the local community thinks. Now, that undermines confidence in the planning system as a whole, not just on those particular issues. So the planning system to work has to command public confidence, and that means you need to get consistency of, of behaviour out of government. But I think the point Vince is making about innovation and investment are, are really significant. The change that really took place in Paris wasn't so much the change in the text. It was we shifted from thinking about climate change as a constraint on the economy to see, beginning to see climate change as a massive economic opportunity to restructure our energy system and in, make enormous uh, amount of change that would not only reduce the burden on the planet, but would also reduce the burden on people's pockets and their bills and I think that's really important. And is that I mean is that true it seems that a lot of the political tide at the moment seems to be pushing back against that kind of thing or even accepting that climate change is a problem more human made. I, I think you want to be very careful not to confuse what's going on in the headlines in particularly British and American newspapers, with what's going on with the public or amongst politicians. I see no sign of any kind of global pushback uh, or indeed any kind of national pushback in this country against climate change. Quite the opposite, and opinion polling supports that. I think what we need to do, however, is to not focus so much of the debate on technology choice in which people get lost and 
tangled up in cost-benefit numbers which nobody really believes, but realize that we have this amazing opportunity now using big data, the fact that we're moving to a digital economy, to focus on what kind of electricity system do we want and how do we deliver, how do we make that low-carbon, affordable and very secure in a way that meets what customers need and not what producers need, which is what a lot of our existing energy system does. I mean, that sounds highly optimistic. I'm really positive. Where do you think the biggest challenges are in making those changes that we need to make? Well, there are two really big challenges. One is bad ideas, mostly in the heads of economists and from them into the heads of politicians. That's a really big challenge. And the second really big challenge is incumbency, uh, the fact that you've got very powerful entrenched interests that are very difficult to move. Now, part of the reason they're so difficult to move is we don't think about the social consequences of change. So there are a lot of people in my community very excited by all the opportunities for a low-carbon economy will create lots of jobs, bring lots of economic benefits, but there won't be the same jobs for the same people in the same places with the same skills. And I think we've been slow to think through how you deal with the social adjustment of change. I think we're seeing that in lots of fields, not just the environment and that's partly why there is such a sense of discontent generally in the country. Well, I, I used to work for one of the incumbents. Well, it was then the second largest uh, oil and gas company in the world. But there was a, a really revealing debate which took place when I was there. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, but between those of us who were involved in the kind of strategic management issues, who boldly took the view that climate change is going to happen, and if you're in the industry, you've got to adapt, and those who saw, saw themselves as incumbents protecting the oil and gas sector. And initially, anyway, the radicals won, and the, the company did make a big shift from uh, taking carbon out of the molecule, more hydrogen, by shifting to gas and embracing the renewable movement. Then they went backwards. But I think now there is a recognition that for the future of oil and gas companies is actually in renewables. And I was interested to see that Shell is shortly opening the first petrol station in Britain that won't have any oil in it. It will all be for electric vehicles. And I think that is very much the the trend of the future. And the incumbents can be turned into allies because they have the technology and they have the capital and they can do stuff. And given what you just mentioned, I had a couple of questions from some listeners, actually a lot about electric vehicles. Uh, The first one said, you know, will the Liberal Democrats bring forward the current government's plans to stop the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and introduce hybrid and electric cars. Would you want to see that deadline brought forward sooner? Well, there is a particular issue around diesel, which is not simply about carbon emissions, but it's about uh, particular roots and, and the other environmental damage which diesel does. And everybody now understands that they have to be phased out. And we've been pushing the case for a scrappage scheme that advances the phase out of diesel. But I think the, the basic problem with moving from currently hybrids, and many of us have got hybrids, towards full electric vehicles is having a, a charge point system around the country, building up the infrastructure. Because unless you have the infrastructure, then vehicles that have limited range, you know, people are not going to take that risk. So the, the role of the government is to make sure that the, the infrastructure is in place before you start talking about banning things. 
I had quite a few questions about infrastructure as well, actually. One said, uh, what about parking for people who don't have parking space? I mean, we're all quite familiar with that in London, people who live in apartment blocks um, who don't have private parking. Where are they going to be able to charge their vehicles? How confident are you that that infrastructure is coming or do you think you know more should be being done by the current government? Well, it is a bit slow. I mean, it is happening. We did put a bit of money into it when I was in the coalition, and it's it's not taken off as rapidly as it should. But there's a kind of chicken and egg problem. Until there, you have the infrastructure, you don't have the cars, and when you get the cars, you need the infrastructure. But so you've got to get a bit ahead ahead of the curve. But I think I think it's also about different social attitudes. I mean, as it happens yesterday night, I was in Warwick University giving a lecture to the students, and I noticed that in the car park, about half of the cars in the car park were part of a car share scheme, where the students, I mean, obviously they're not rolling in money, you know, actually now do car sharing as a matter of course. And it's, you know, it's a very kind of sociable, forward-thinking thing to do, and, and they get, get concessions on their parking policy. So if you have this kind of enlightened social behaviour alongside environmental awareness, things will move very quickly. And we saw that with the changeover from leaded petrol. It's quite interesting. It had very much a similar sort of character, chicken and egg, to the one Vince was describing. What was created was a, a price incentive, but that wasn't what really made the difference. What really, and it was the actual money. What really made the difference was when the forecourt owners thought it was worth making the investment to put the infrastructure in. Then people took advantage of the of the uh, price incentive. But the real thing was exactly as Vince was saying: was the a- accessibility. Could you be confident you could get access to this? Changing topic slightly, something else that uh, exercised a lot of people on our Facebook page, and we had several similar questions on actually, was about agriculture and changes in agriculture, and also connecting that to Brexit and people's fears that leaving the EU would mean uh, rollback on environmental protections and uh, a less green agriculture. Uh, first of all, Tom, I want to know what you think about the sort of possibility of that how realistic is that what what you know what are the risks Brexit will be extremely bad for farmers and for the environment but interestingly I think Michael Gove's job has been to get the environmental community to support the idea that farmers are producing public goods and therefore some of the money the treasury wants to take back from farmers will be left to do environment I think that's quite cynical but that's what I think is going on I think whichever way you look at it uh, Brexit's going to be an appalling thing for farmers uh, whether we have a soft or a hard Brexit uh, uh, I think it'll be really bad anything that's bad for farmers will be bad for the environment in that respect and then when you look at the broader environmental agenda uh, it's going to be appalling I mean especially if we have a hard Brexit, we end up in an economic hurricane that seems quite likely, then you'll see a government absolutely desperate for growth at any cost, and you'll see a monumental tsunami of deregulation. That will be extremely bad and will wash away 40 years of real progress. And you think that's a realistic risk? Yes. Um, And I think you've got a government that can't agree with itself, let alone the rest of the EU. Yes, I, I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable about agriculture. I, I represent a suburban constituency with no farmers in it. My wife is a smallholder farmer, so I, I do get a bit of input from, from her. I, I think we need to look a little back a little bit at the European 
agricultural policy, which used to be truly awful. I mean, it was the worst of all worlds. Under the old system, farmers were paid artificially high prices, which they led to overproduction based on scientific farming, so-called, which did a great deal of environmental damage. So you got uh, consumers paying high prices, large surpluses being generated, which were then dumped on world markets, hurting farmers in poor countries. It was a truly awful policy, and it was one of the genuine negatives about the, the European Union. Uh, but it has since been radically reformed. This incentivization of overproduction has almost entirely stopped. There is still an element of protectionism in the policy, but it's much less. And what happens now is under the so-called set-aside schemes is that there's a very strong emphasis on protecting the countryside as an environmental resource. And that's a big step forward, uh, and it's you know, partly been achieved by the British working within the European Union to achieve good reforms. And the idea that we're walking away from a system that we've improved is just bizarre. But I, I do agree with Tom that if leaving the European Union means that we, we simply throw open the agricultural sector to unrestricted competition with no standards, no protection of the environment, it, it will be devastating for farmers. They'll lose a lot of their income, of course. It may provide some short-term benefit to consumers, but it's, it, it's potentially very bad economics and very bad for the environment. You know, it's quite interesting. The RSPB, the Royal Society of Protection of Birds, has about 1.2 million people. That's about twice as many people as our members of the all of the political parties in Britain combined. One of the things that being a member of the EU, being in the EU, allows us to do is to protect our migratory species. And Britain has been able to extend its will over the rest of Europe through the Birds Directive. So we're abandoning and getting out of the uh, EU. We're abandoning an ability to do things for ourselves. It's not just things that we're doing with others. We're going to give up on something that is much more clearly in the interest of British people than politics, which is bird watching. And just one of the topical issues in politics at the moment, of course, is what happens to this so-called Great Repeal Bill going through Parliament. It's a very kind of esoteric Westminster bubble kind of issue in many ways. But, but to get to the heart of what the problem is, uh, it, it potentially creates powers where the government, without any proper parliamentary oversight, could decide to amend the regulations which we currently participate in the European Union relating to the environment. So things around water quality or air quality or the protection of beaches, things or species protection, all things that have come in through the European Union, these, these could be just quietly filleted away and destroyed if you had a kind of radical deregulatory government. Uh, effectively, people are powerless in this country to do something about a government that won't obey its own law. Uh, the, this government has weakened judicial review to make it even harder for people to get the government to obey its own laws, and that's what happened on air quality. Inside the EU, you've always got the backstop of the European court. When we leave, according to the withdrawal bill, there will be no role for the European court. So effectively, the government can go back to ignoring the law when it suits it. I have one last question which came in from one of our listeners, uh, which is more of a sort of political question, really, and I think uh, goes along with some of the conversations you see floating around on the Lib Dem pages on Facebook, this policy discussion questions, which was why you think, Vince, someone should vote for the Lib Dems rather than for the Greens? 
Well, I, you know, we have a much more integrated approach to policy. You, you, you've got to have sensible economic policies. You've got to have environmentally sound policies. I think the problem with the Greens in the past is, you know, fairly or unfairly, they have been seen as a single-issue party. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm not anti the Greens. I mean, in, in my particular area, which is Twickenham, uh, Richmond Borough, the Greens stood down their candidate to support me in the general election. We are reciprocating with um, giving them a place on our slate in the local government elections next year. And it's not simply based on political expediency. It's based on the fact that actually there are quite a lot of common values and many of the idealists who joined the Green Party find it very difficult now to exercise any political power because they're not in the government locally or nationally. The Lib Dems have a much better chance of achieving something. So there is common ground. And so rather than find all the things which we disagree about, and I'm sure there are things, we've found common ground and want to work with them. And I, uh, that's my basic approach to the relationship. Okay. Thank you. Tom, is there anything else you just said? <laughs> Perfect timing. Uh, no, I, I think it's very heartening to see Vince's attitude to uh, the Greens. I think most people in this country are a long way away from being at the extremes that you find in either the Labour Party or the Conservative Party. And I think that till we get proportional representation, when small parties have a chance to grow to reflect, as it were, a more focused interest, then I think it's really important to see that the parties that actually reflect, more reflect the, the broad values of the country working together. I think it's sad that the Greens didn't get as much a reward for what they did, which I thought was a really good example of putting a matter of principle into practice in politics and doing, as Vince said, standing down. And I was very glad to hear that the Lib Dems have reciprocated that. Thanks for listening to Liberated. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do rate, review and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. As you heard, we're also putting your questions to Vince, so please do check our Facebook page and look for posts on other Lib Dem sites where we'll be letting you know what topic we want questions on next. We're at Liberated Pod on Twitter and Liberated Podcast on Facebook. Thanks to Tom Burke for joining the conversation and to Mark Pack and Benjamin Leal for their invaluable support making this series. <laughs>